Hello, I'm Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Welcome to this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. Our guest today is Amina Lookman Dawson. She's the author of Free Water, which is her tremendously powerful debut middle grade book. Free Water depicts the lives of children connected to a fictional maroon community located in the southern United States during the 19th century. Some of the characters, such as Homer and Ada, arrive in Free Water via an escape from enslavement. Others, such as Sanzi, were born to this free community and do not understand the dynamics of the outside world, including the oppression and racism they would experience in the wider world. This novel has received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Hornbook, Kirkus, and others, including Booklist, who raves, This lyrical story of hope, strength, and ingenuity will be gobbled up by young history buffs and adventure lovers. Director Christopher Paul Curtis and Avi fans this way. I can't agree with this review more. It is one of the most powerful books I have read in years, and I'm so excited to have Amina with us today. Welcome, Amina. Thank you. I really love this book, and I it had a strange journey coming to LBYR. But we are so happy to have it on our list, and it has been a joy to work with you. We should just hop right into this conversation uh, about this truly lovely book. I'm fascinated by your background because I did also did not come to children's books in a, in a straightforward fashion. So my background was in biblical studies and academia. Yours is in public policy. And you have a very lovely prior publication that is a photographic book uh, about African Americans in Virginia. I'm not going to say I love American history because so many things, but I'm intrigued by it and I am intrigued by early photography. And I know a lot of your work has been in these areas and you came to children's literature and writing free water later. How did your background in doing public policy and this earlier history work how did you use this background in creating free water? Can you ex just go into that a little bit about that transition and the skills you had to use, etc.? Absolutely. Uh, first, thank you so much, Victoria. I have loved the, our partnership in this. Uh, LBYR has been a wonderful home. I feel like free water was meant to be here, and it's all worked out as it was meant to be. I've been fortunate, right? Images of America, my first book, um, although it was nonfiction, uh, it had some really similar uh, beginnings as I did for Free Water. So imagine I, for both in both cases, I had to start at my local library. And then I traveled on to the Library of Virginia and then on to the Library of Congress. And each place I went to, I'd, I'd, done, I'd done for Images of America as I did for Free Water. I just was in different rooms. And and or on different shelves, uh, depending on my topic. And so that was great. And then from there, it, it continues similarly. I look for local historians in doing my work on Petersburg, Virginia. And I also had to go through and find historians about the Maroons of the United States. And so I found Sylvia Nduv, an amazing historian who I think has produced the only comprehensive work looking at Maroons in the United States of America specifically. Uh, and then she led me to the Great Dismal Swamp, where then I found another expert, Dr. Daniel Sayers. It, so 
you can see how the, the tools you use in one genre really can sort of carry you on and, and overlay right in, into free water, even though one is nonfiction versus the other being fiction. And finally, of course, I got this great inspiration from place. And so in Petersburg, I walked the streets of Petersburg, looked at places, old buildings, found out the history behind them. As I did for free water, I ended up at the Great Dismal Swamp, ended up at plantations, ended up just sort of finding inspiration from the spaces I wanted to write about. And both really were compelling and both provided me with just a great place um, in regard to just a great place to begin writing. Now the greater challenge, of course, was writing a, comp a compelling story, like how to tell the story. And those are skills developed, I think for me, I developed them just over numerous drafts. This is a truly a labor of love. I cannot, I don't even know how many drafts at this point. It, it could have been 30, could have been more. I don't know. To be honest, I just sort of lost track. And in that process, I realized a few things. One, like, I think I do have an instinct for crafting story. A real sense of drama <laughs> that I was born Ooh. with. It found a, it found a, found a home in, in writing and in storytelling, and um, I also knew just the stories I enjoyed, uh, both as a kid and now. And I knew the stories my son enjoyed even more so um, as I read to him. He liked complex, big, fast-paced stories, and I too like those, to be honest. And so that was the challenge: how could I take my storytelling to a place where it could be? that it would it could be it could feel the way i wanted it to feel big moving always impactful and the characters were really the engine behind all of that well we'll talk about the characters in a second but you've said a couple of things here that pick at my brain first of for those who do not know what maroon communities are could you tell us a little bit about what they are Absolutely. Maroons are, during enslavement times, they were enslaved people who escaped and found ways to live free in the wilderness, be it in swamps that were nearby or deep in forests. They were sort of unique opportunities or unique spaces that people created in order to live free, even though they were surrounded, really, essentially, by enslavement. So they were hidden, they were clandestine, and they found all sorts of intriguing and, and clever ways to remain so. They, they really are a testament to ingenuity. And, and you can find that both here and for those who don't know about Maroons, though, you can find a history, a deep history of them, not only here in the United States, but particularly throughout the Americas, anywhere there was where there was enslavement. You can almost bet that if you search hard and deep, you will find it. So in Jamaica, they were so intense and so large that they actually had uh, maroon wars during the time um, where where they had to fight to hold their survival once they were discovered. And those people who started maroon communities, their ancestors still live on that land. So we don't have necessarily that same big, robust history here in the United States ongoing, but we do have an essential history that can be explored. And I, of course, should help to do so in, in free water. That speaks to the amount of research that you did beginning in these communities and looking at these places and you've you've touched on the amount of research that you've done and also the amount of revision that you've done so it really is sort of a balancing act isn't it and i think this does come into play whether you're doing a non-fiction or informational book or a work of fiction that amount of research into 
what you wanted to achieve. Can you speak a little bit about the balancing act that you had to achieve here with this? There is a great amount of intentionality I think I had in crafting Free Water. And it's weird to actually tell you that because I feel as though I'm giving away some sort of writer's secret or something. Because <laughs> um, like, I certainly don't want a reader to feel that intentionality. I want them to walk away with the story in their heart, not necessarily with my, uh, <laughs> with my crafting. Um, but I did, I used the history though, I used the research as a vehicle for the storytelling and not the other way around. Now, deep historical aspects are in free water. And so just to be clear, and, but my intent was not to have necess necessarily the reader leave with just that knowledge of that history. Um, so Maroons were, to be honest, they were, I used that community as a strategy, as a literary, physical, literary space, safe space and a physical safe space in which to tell a story that really connects people to those who had been enslaved. If you try to tell that same story in the middle of a plantation, there's always just that tinkering stress of perhaps victimization there, who knows, they, there's a lack of control over the space. And so as soon as you move it out of that space into this created community, um, sure, there still is um, a threat of, 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 there's a threat there, but it is far enough, remote enough, so that you can actually be there and breathe and listen and hear and enjoy the children who live there. And so it is, a, it was a great strategy. <laughs> and so, and then, um, um, so free water is really, it's, it's, although you will digest historical facts, it's not meant to, to be there for that digestion. Um, you really want, that's a choice I made from day one. So, so imagine, um, it's not set at a specific historical location, right? I wanted the freedom to be able to tell a grand story. I wanted to be able to include a sky bridge if I wanted to include that remembering day and all these things for those who haven't read the book will become clear, but I wanted to include grand things that would excite the imagination of any reader and make them want to be in this place. Um, now, just to be clear that this is a nugget of history used for great storytelling. And that is not a new approach, right? Mainstream writing has done that uh, since, the, since the beginning of literature in the United States, particularly. Um, it, it's storytelling meant to sort of imprint feelings toward history. Let's just take, for example, like the story of the princess, right? She, that, that's, princesses, that story has been told a thousand ways, typically though in a historical setting, right? Where did she live? She lived a long time ago in a place far, far away. <laughs> and she likely wears a, an old ball gown and lives in an old castle. And, you know, and she has a very, most importantly, though, she has a very sympathetic plight. You feel for her. Um, she's not of today, but she lives in, I call it our historical imagination. She lives in our historical imagination. So powerful is this image that many little girls today want to be that princess of yesterday, right? Never you mind that, you know, the truth might be is that, you know, that princess likely was based on privilege and riches that were, you know, derived from exploiting labor from others. Pish posh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but 
the, that's not the story that we focus on. That's not the story we've been told. And it's been, but it's such a powerful story that when we have been told that it helps us, I think, even value monarchy and the concept of the princess today so that you can walk around in any Halloween parade and see how many girls dressed as princesses. Uh, just because we have that strong background, that strong story sense. Now for free water, it's not wholly cut from a fable cloth like like that, you know, it's it's got great historical nuggets to it. But the and and to the fact that maroons did live in you know in the swamps of Virginia, North Carolina, and all throughout the South, and that someone like the the character Miss Light is really based on a true maroon leader in Jamaica, or Suleiman is based on reports of of marauders who would steal from plantations and live and and then take their 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 what they stole and live in the forest and the swamps. Um, that's real. But and I can go on and on about the tidbits of history we use. But that was not my intention in Free Water. My intention is more in the line of the princess tale to really to leave that kind of indelible mark on how the reader connects with the people, the children in particular who were enslaved in the historical past. I want these children to really be part of our historical imagination in that same way that the princess was. Okay, silence from the greatness of this answer. Okay, you're But very also, um, brains going, because gentle listeners, we are recording this two days after the funeral of Queen Elizabeth and the rhetoric around her as a semi-mythic figure and national identity. It, uh, brains, brains going, but also thinking sort of... So as some listeners may remember, before I was doing a children's literature, I was doing a PhD in biblical studies, and one of the most powerful uh, sequences occurs in the book of Deuteronomy. Everybody thinks uh, Genesis and Exodus, and then they get stuck on Leviticus, but Deuteronomy, and thinking about the um, entry of the Israelites into the promised land, and how, and those vows speaking... Uh, we enter our parents, you, your parents, you, your fathers, you, your mothers, that sort of intergenerational um, continuity. And thinking about free water, it is that, and you talking about historical imagination, it's thinking about that very human empathy between the reader and, yes, you, the author, but even more the characters, Sansa and Homer and Miss Light. Just that sense of continuity of finding the reader finding themselves within that emotional truthfulness in that meaningfulness right. of those lives. So thinking about the research as that you've done as providing the, the framework and the netting, so to speak, for you to then uh, explore meaningfulness in the way that maroon communities built their own meaningfulness of their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is it is essential to so to really understand that as a as a strategy to have that scaffolding of a maroon community, you have so much opportunity to really create a senses of connection, of sympathy, of empathy, of all those, all the things you want to help build humanity, all the things you want to help move away from just an enslaved child being a number on a sheet to being a fully fledged human being who 
had experiences and found ways to survive in what we in a in a system that we can hardly fathom today. Definitely, and so that leads us to talk about these characters. I know you have placed the story in a non-specific. You cannot look on a map and find free water. There is no version of any map of the United States that will show it to you. But you have invoked a very specific sense of place and very specific characters. I was speaking to Michaela Goad uh, for another project, and really one of the things that struck me as she was talking about it was more specificity mm. allows for more universality. It's the specificity of that character. It's the specificity of your setting that really allows us to to come into that story with our more of our own emotional truthfulness. Is that something that you really thought about doing in your characterizations of building Sansa and Homer and the other characters, but also just the smell of the mm -hmm. geography they, they go through, those swamps and the light and the, and the water and just that feeling of the air. Sorry, I could go on and on about this book, but... <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh no, I think that's a very interesting concept, and and I think there's some truth to that here. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with the setting. Um, I just had this great gift of having a setting in the, to set my story in a swamp. Just, I mean, they're natural. They just naturally offer a sense of mystery, and thus a feeling of adventure. And so, yes, I went to great lengths. To, to describe it in a way that was captivating, a way that would make one wonder what more was there to discover in this month, you know? But what I think what also makes it come to life though is how the reader sees it. You gotta see you see the swamp through the eyes of Homer and Ada. We see their fascination. We see what brings it to life is that there's so much um, that is, I guess, unseen in the swamp and hidden at first. We see the sky bridge could be above you. You don't know. You'd have to know to look up. The tree people might be in the trees around you, as Ada calls them, the tree people. Uh, Suleiman, the marauder, could be lurking in the shadows. And then there's free water itself. You know, it's it's a it's a hard place to live, but the fact that it exists, that these free people are living on this small island in an ocean of enslavement, it just feels magical, right? Um, that it even exists feels magical. And so the story really feeds the setting as much as the setting kind of feeds the story. Um, they, they really do hold each other. I love, though, that people have felt connected to the swamp. Um, I, I think that, that is a great accomplishment, given that it is a swamp. <laughs> and then there's the children, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about your comment about this idea of specificity. I think, yes, so there are numerous like child characters in Free Water, and creating them, and you can see some classical underpinnings. And so, yes, that's not specific, right? Right, because Santi is the adventurer, Billy is the sensitive, Ada the dreamer, Juna the responsible. I go on and on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of know these personalities. And I felt like that was critical in making it clear to the reader that you could be one of these kids, that essentially, their essence, they're just kids. But what makes them unique and what kind of starts to shape them into these crafted just characters that you might not have seen in literature is that they are being shaped by this environment, that they have been around this system of enslavement um, or within free water. They've been within free water. 
And so for those who have been enslaved, like, let's say, uh, Homer and Ada, you can see how each of them kind of carries a wound from it. And that wound is, I made sure of that. That was a crafting decision Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that each Mm -hmm. child, that no one left that system unharmed. So Homer is shrinking himself into invisibility. Ada has a burn on her arm from and memories of cruelty. Billy has a stammer. Ferdinand has nightmares. No one has made it out without something. And conversely, though, for each child that has been in free water, no one has made it out without some gift of that freedom. So Sanzi has this sense of confidence, of fearlessness. Juna has a sense of inner value. That's why when Juna finally meets the first white person she's ever seen, like, she doesn't even know, she, she doesn't even realize and so she sees him that he doesn't see any value in her and and that she's just seeing her as property. And that's what frightened her to her core, that she was sort of drained of who she knew she was. And what's really beautiful, I think, and I think the characters are good. I'm very proud of the characters I created. However, I think what's beautiful is to see their interactions, to hear their conversations. And that's where they start to live and breathe and, and sort of and create that magic. Um, because you get to hear conversations that are really heard in literature. A child who has never known enslavement like Sanzi, she's never even known white supremacy. She doesn't even know the concept. To hear her discuss her dreams and her hopes for the world, where she wants to go and what she wants to accomplish with Billy, who knows enslavement and he knows what some of the world holds outside of free water. It's an intense conversation that that I, I hope the reader kind of takes something takes something away from that and, and an understanding then of, of what it was to have lived in that time. So yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of these characters and, and setting. I do think it's just so masterful how you did it. You know, they aren't stock characters. And as we spoke again about meaningfulness of the lives and meaningfulness of those that creativity, I think that's where the specificity comes out of it is that you, you show the three and four dimensionality uh, mm-hmm. of their interactions with each other, with the adults, with the land, with it just, it, I think it all arises out of there. And it's so beautifully balanced. It really is. So sometimes, you know, plot will overwhelm character in some books. And you're just like, okay, well, plot armor. And we're just, it's a runaway train of just, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then sometimes uh, character just overwhelms plot. And you just don't know why anything is happening because you spend so much time in the interior. But here it's just very well balanced uh it's just so lovely thank you you know and thinking about the meaningfulness of these characters in these lives you know thinking now the book is in the world you went through all of these revisions uh with all with you know more than one editor let us say that long journey to printing and you got to that where you were happy and you were satisfied and you were fulfilled with it almost all the way because i know authors they always want to change a comma at the very least. But now, Free Water has been out for several months, and I'm actually, even though I wanted to have this conversation this spring when the book was first coming out, I think now it's actually a little bit better because you've been with readers of the book and you've interacted with them in a number of settings. What has been your experience of the response to Free Water? I've been so fortunate, right? I've found children out there who have been 
willing and, and have taken this journey with me and they, they've just been willing to trust the story and, and go for a ride. And, and I love when they find thrilling things about it. They'll say, Oh, what about Suleiman? Or what about, you know, this? Oh, and, and they'll mention things that just stand out for them. And that to me means they have sort of dropped into the story. And that is what any, any writer wants is to have a child just lose themselves, right? And so anytime I hear something, those sorts of comments, I just feel so excited and um, and grateful. Uh, and then I've been also amazed at the number of adults out there too that have these great mm-hmm. insights. Having read it, they'll they'll in some ways I, not that they recognize the intentionality, but they'll they'll say some deep comments that allow me to know that they got it. They were with me, and 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 that and that some of my goals were met, and and it was effective. I get like so much like um, gratitude out of those conversations. <laughs> Just feeling great about it. The one question probably that I haven't been that hasn't been asked, you know, that I, that I felt like it's you know I kind of wish. I mean, it's not that it hasn't been asked, but I wish that I could talk about more clearly um, is sort of where free water's place is in the world. Like, why does free water matter? Like, why? Why? And I know that's kind of a big question, right? But I think about this a lot. And one of the things I've always understood is that it's just, it's a known fact that enslaved women, men, children, um, they just weren't permitted to read and write, right? And that's a terrible reality. That was a terrible reality for them, right? But we don't often discuss it as often as it should be in the way of the tragedy it has been for those of us who have come behind them, right? And as a writer, I can't imagine the kind of psychological impact of not being permitted to express myself in in words um but what may be even greater though is is this sort of indescribable barrier that the prohibition created for us in knowing those people in knowing who they were so we don't have the voices of those children in real time we have just like we do have a limited number of slave narratives and i did listen to those in my research and they are valuable but imagine one how few there are relative to how many there were who went through this system. And also imagine though that the stories they tell are done in retrospect, right? Imagine you or I telling like our childhood story, like once we've reached adulthood, like how that differs is so essentially from our actual experience in the moment, what we've forgotten, what we've covered or shaded, if anything, especially trauma for our own survival, you know? And so I was thinking about this and a few months back, I was listening to NPR and they were discussing how finally they have, um, discovered the person who is responsible for informing on the whereabouts of Anne Frank and her family during the Holocaust, right? Anne Frank's diary was written in her own voice, in her own experience at that time as a child. And it just, it told, you know, the horrors, right? Um, And it showed the humanity of the people that were being impacted at that time. And it proved so valuable. I mean, it struck me as I listened to this, it proved so valuable that some 80 years later, we want to know who silenced that voice. Um, And that's how important it is, right? So for these enslaved children who, you know, could not tell their stories that should not um, really end our need to make those stories known, you know, their stories matter, 
it's through those voices that we see more than kind of the facts and the figures of enslavement. Instead, we leave with just like an understanding of how each life is impacted, how each child loved and suffered, and each tale of how they survived through it all, right? Mm -hmm. So free water fits in that space. And that's why free water matters. It gives voice and face and personality and joy, sadness in all aspects of humanity to these children. Amina, you are a joy and a delight. And it is, again, our great privilege to have free water with Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And I cannot wait to see what you do next in your storytelling. Thank you. It will be amazing. Gentle listeners out there in the virtual universe, Free Water, written by Amina Lookman Dawson, is on shelves now, and you should do yourself the very great favor of picking up a copy and reading it, and so that you can get a feeling of how this story can sound read out loud. We are going to end our episode today with a sample of the audiobook Free Water, read by Carrie Height and Cece Aisha Johnson, also available through Hachette Audio. Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you love Free Water, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. The night Homer and Ada ran from Sutherland Plantation, Anna awoke with a start from the bark of the dogs. Four others, a mother, father, and their two children, also asleep on the dirt floor across the cabin, did the same. They all knew what the sound meant. Runaways. Someone had tried to escape. The four peered through the cabin's small window. Anna went outside. She stepped into the night as Stokes and two men ran past with the dogs, their noses already sniffing the air. Get back in your cabin, Stokes barked at her. Get back in there, Rick and Ron echoed, running behind Stokes. Anna moved into the doorway's shadow and waited for them to pass. Who ran off? Sarah and her father? Or maybe the two tall men, Clive and Henry? No. Candlelight flickered in their windows. In fact, there was light in each cabin apart from one. Can't be, she thought as she pushed the door open to Homer's old home. Moonlight rushed in and shone on elderly Mrs. Petunia, still snoring on the floor with three empty blankets beside her. Homer was gone. They all were. A memory flooded her mind. In the early days, when she first met Homer, he hardly spoke or even looked at her. But she knew they'd become friends because in the quiet times, his words would come. She knew that she was his best friend when he shared his secret. They were alone one afternoon, sitting at the river's edge fishing for dinner. Homer leaned in and whispered, I can make myself invisible. What's invisible? Anna asked. Is that like making yourself happy or angry? she wondered. It's when no one can see me, Homer said. Anna stared at him, her brow furrowed in confusion before stating the obvious. Homer, I can see you, 
Homer sighed. It's not like that. I do it when I need to. Anna saw that he believed it. He was her friend, the only one she'd ever had. Maybe she should believe it too. I could show you how, he said. All right, Anna said slowly. Homer inhaled and his face went still. His lips moved only the slightest bit. You have to think yourself into nothing. Be where you are, but don't see yourself there. I do it hard enough and most times no one even sees me, Homer explained. Anna squinted her eyes at him. Are you doing it now? Cause I still see you, she said. No, I'm not doing it now, said Homer, turning to face the water, his feelings crushed. I do it back there, he gestured toward the plantation. I was thinking you could use it with mistress. Maybe it could help you. Homer threw a stone into the water. I suppose, said Anna, wanting to make things right with him. If she can't see you, maybe she won't get at you like she does, said Homer. Anna exhaled. I don't know. As soon as she gets in one of her ways, I become... Anna thought, what's the opposite of invisible? Red? Yeah, I'm like shining red, and she hits me. She let out a sad laugh. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Homer laughed, too, so as not to let her laugh alone. Anna smiled at the memory, gazed about the cabin, then whispered his name. Homer. When no one answered in return, apart from Mrs. Petunia's snore, she knew Homer wasn't invisible. He was gone.